Thanks for joining me on the second episode of my book review club. Today I'm going to be talking about uh, Freud's General Introduction to Psychoanalysis. This is a book that it was a series of lectures given between 1915 and 1917 by Sigmund Freud to a group of medical students. G. Stanley Hall, who was the American Psychological Association president at the time, wrote the foreword to this book. And in the foreword, he says, These 28 lectures to laymen are elementary and almost conversational. Freud sets forth with a frankness almost startling the difficulties and limitations of psychoanalysis and also describes its main methods and results as only a master and originator of a new school of thought can do. These discourses are at the same time simple and almost confidential, and they trace and sum up the results of 30 years of devoted and painstaking research. While they are not at all controversial, we incidentally see in a clearer light the distinctions between the master and some of his distinguished pupils. Freud himself noted uh, these lectures were coursework intended for the multitude. So that is why I wanted to start with this book. Um, I want to get a feel for Freud's psychoanalysis, um, a general overview, before I start getting into some of the other works that he might have written for more of the, the people in his psychoanalytical circle at the time. Now, a few things to note about uh, this translation. I'm using um, this hardback book that I bought a few years ago. It was translated by Joan Riviere with the, the preface by Ernest Jones. Um, so Ernest Jones was the president of the International Psychoanalytical Association at the time. And he was noted for saying that with many of the translations from Freud in German into English, um, that they were not always felicitous, causal, and at times fearfully inaccurate. And so later came around the standard edition by Strachey, which if you've seen the last episode where Dr. Deborah Lupnitz and I talk about Bruno Bettelheim's Freud and Man's Soul, you might know that um, even with the standard edition, there was many mistranslations and misrepresentations of the way that Freud explained things and certain words that he used. Um, so anything that I talk about today, it should be taken into context that this is not the standard edition and it's not the original German. So. Let's have at it. Point one, introducing psychoanalysis. So Freud talks about how as a, med as a medical doctor, you might introduce a new form of treatment and you talk about its efficacy, that we know it's going to work. You try to instill hope in the patient, but how psychoanalysis and introducing that to a patient is completely different. So he writes, usually when we introduce a patient to a new form of treatment, we minimize its difficulties and give him confident assurances of its success. This is, in my opinion, perfectly justifiable, for we thereby increase the probability of success. But, when we undertake to treat a neurotic psychoanalytically, we proceed otherwise. We explain to him the difficulties of the method, its long duration, the trials and sacrifices which will be required of him, and as to the result, we tell him that we can make no definite promises, that success depends upon his endeavors, upon his understanding, his adaptability, and his perseverance. We have, of course, good reasons into which you will perhaps gain some insight later on for adopting this apparently perverse attitude. 
And now I found that interesting. And at the same time, I, I recently read Freud's Vienna, again by Bruno Bettelheim. And in that book, he was discussing his first experience of undergoing psychoanalysis. And he was talking about how he met this psychoanalyst and he was inquiring about, um, you know, the fees, the process and everything like that. And he had some doubts and didn't really know for sure that he needed psychoanalysis. Um, and so he, he questioned the psychoanalyst. And this is what Bruno Bettelheim writes. On this first meeting, after we had discussed the time of the sessions and the fee I was to pay, I revealed my doubts about going into analysis. I first asked Dr. Sturba whether he thought I really needed to do so. His answer was that he had not the slightest idea now. He might know whether or not I needed it in perhaps a year or possibly two. But by then, I would know too and would not need to be told by him. This hardly reassured me about my question, so after some further small talk, I asked him whether psychoanalysis would help me. To this, his answer was pretty much the same as before. At this moment, he had no idea, and he would not know any sooner than would I. These answers failed to reduce my doubts, so with some desperation, I finally asked him what reason there could be for me to go into psychoanalysis. To this, he replied that from our conversation, he had learned that for many years I had been interested in psychoanalysis. Because of this, the only promise he felt able to give me was that I would find the experience very interesting because I would discover things about myself that I had not known before. This would permit me to understand myself better and would make many aspects of my life and behavior more comprehensible to me. Since I had the time and the money to undergo psychoanalysis, why not find out more about myself? Now, I really enjoyed uh, stumbling upon that, especially right before I was to give this um, overview of a general intro to psychoanalysis. Um, and it was right after that portion that Bruno Bettelheim talks about how the way that that psychoanalyst, Dr. Sturba, answered him to this, it instilled his respect and his trust in him all the much more that he wasn't just going to give him some, he wasn't going to tell him what he wanted to hear, or he wasn't going to give him some false hope, or he wasn't going to say, um, you know, it made it, it, it took it away from, I am the authority, I know what I'm doing, just do what I say and you'll be fine, because that's not what psychoanalysis is all about. And um, and his experience turned out really well. I encourage you to read the book for yourself. Point number two, psychoanalysis and advice giving. So if you've ever gone to therapy before, some of you might have had therapists who you basically show up and they say, why are you doing that? Do this. You need to do this instead. Or this is what I would do in that situation. Just follow my advice. Um, I've definitely had a therapist like that before. And my last supervisor, that's how he practiced. And for a lot of people, that works well. Um, it depends on your, you know, your method of therapy and your, your style. But for psychoanalysts, they were not into advice giving. Um, let me read you here what Freud says in this book. Besides this, I can assure you that you are quite misinformed if you imagine that advice and guidance concerning conduct in life forms an integral part of the analytic method. On the contrary, so far as possible, we refrain from playing the part of mentor. We want nothing better than that the patient should find his own solutions for himself. To this end, we expect him to postpone all vital decisions affecting his life, such as choice of career, business enterprises, marriage or divorce, during treatment and to execute them only after it has been completed. 
Now you see psychoanalysis, it's not about giving advice. Um, it's about it's about the analysand or the person going through the analysis, um, exploring themselves and finding out more about themselves. Um, one of my supervisors who is more into psychodynamic therapy, she talks about it's best when the client walks away from the session um, feeling as if like, wow, that was a really good session. I discovered so much or I learned so much. Not when they walk away thinking, wow, my therapist is the smartest person ever. I'm just going to do what they say. Because then that fosters reliance on the therapist. It fosters, um, they call it infantilism. So like you're basically the patient or the client is becoming somewhat like an infant and just listening to the authority figure, which is the therapist. Um, and that's not what we're trying to do. Um, it's best to kind of stay back, and but allow and foster self-exploration and growth. Um, and as a side note, I don't think any analyst nowadays asks you to, you know, hold off on any major life decisions like marriage or something while they're going through analysis, but I could be wrong. Point number three, the power of words. So a beautiful passage in this book is concerning uh, psychotherapy and the power of words, and I would love to read it to you. And it goes something like this. Words and magic were in the beginning one and the same thing, and even today words retain much of their magical power. By words, one of us can give to another the greatest happiness or bring about utter despair. By words, the teacher imparts his knowledge to the student. By words, the orator sweeps his audience with him and determines its judgments and decisions. Words call forth emotions and are universally the means by which we influence our fellow creatures. Therefore, let us not despise the use of words in psychotherapy, and let us be content if we may overhear the words which pass between the analyst and the patient. Now, I really like this idea of words being powerful, and like in the beginning, words and magic were one and the same thing. It reminds me of you know, in Hebrew scripture in the Old Testament in the Bible. It talks about how um, God spoke creation into existence, and from my understanding, um, in, in Jewish tradition, Hebrew language was considered to have a divine origin. And so it makes me think about how in therapy, um, if you've ever, again, if you've ever been in therapy, you might find yourself putting things into words for the very first time ever. Um, so you might have all of these underlying beliefs, all of these underlying thoughts, all of these under underlying um, opinions, uh, you know, motivations, and then through talking in depth with your therapist and putting things into words for the first time, you might hear it out loud for the very first time and you might think, oh, it sounds way worse when I say it out loud. Like in your head, it, it kind of makes sense or it sounds fine, but saying it out loud for the first time, I've never said this out loud. I've never told anybody this before. And, and you get to put it out into existence and you get to kind of observe it and make changes to it and and make changes to your beliefs and your opinions and that's all formed through the power of words and through speaking it with somebody else and so I really like this idea um, I think it was a great way to kind of start the book and start the introduction point four is symptom reduction so Freud writes in the eyes of the general public the symptoms are the essence of a disease and to them a cure means the removal of the symptoms 
In medicine, however, we find it important to differentiate between symptoms and disease and state that the disappearance of the symptoms is by no means the same as the cure of the disease. Now that was the psychoanalytic outlook back in the early 1900s. However, sadly, today, most psychologists and therapists are trained for symptom reduction. The way it works, we have the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. Um, we're in the fifth edition, TR now, text revised, something like that. But you have basically these categories like mood disorders, anxiety disorders, um, whatever. So you have these categories and then in the category, let's say mood disorder, you have major depressive episode. So under the under the major depressive episode, there are like nine symptoms. And if you have five out of the nine symptoms, well, then you have major depression. You have major depression. So the idea is that if you can remove Let's say you have five symptoms, so that means you have major depression. If you can remove one symptom or two symptoms, you no longer have depression. You're cured, basically. Um, but see, the psychoanalyst, he's, he was saying like the that, that back then, that's in the eyes of the general public. The symptoms are the essence of a disease. Nowadays, it's no longer the eyes of the general public. It's the eyes of like the educated doctoral level psychologists who are thinking this this way now and um, one of the things I appreciate is the still today psychoanalysts don't really concern themselves too much with symptom reduction in that regards they don't equate mental health with the absence of symptoms um, I wanted to introduce you guys to Dr. Jonathan Shedler, who has kind of adapted this from Dr. Nancy McWilliams, who we'll meet here in a little bit as well. But it's the 10 vital signs of psychotherapy progress. So number one is greater attachment, security, sense of safety in relationships. Number two, more integrated and coherent experience of self and others. Number three, increased sense of personal agency. Number four, more realistically grounded and reliable self-esteem. Number five, greater emotional resilience and capacity for affect regulation. Number six, greater ability to reflect on and understand own and others' inner experience. Number seven, increased comfort in functioning both independently and communally. Number eight, more robust sense of vitality and aliveness. Number nine, enhanced capacity for acceptance, forgiveness, gratitude. And number 10, movement toward more mature and flexible defenses. So again, this is one of the things that I appreciate about the psychoanalysts is they look at these psychological vital signs, if you will. And this is what's going to show you whether or not someone's mentally healthy, not an absence of symptoms. Number five, psychic determinism. One of the things I think that is important for anyone to understand um, in relation to Freud's work is that he believed in psychic determinism, which is not just that there's cause and effect in the outside world, but that there's cause and effect in the inside world. So what he says is, I have already taken the liberty of pointing out to you that there is within you a deeply rooted belief in psychic freedom and choice that this belief is quite unscientific 
and that it must give ground before the claims of determinism which governs even mental life. So yes, you see, even mental life, um, in his opinion, is governed by psychic determinism. Regardless of where you stand on the whole free will versus determinism debate, you might find Freud's determinism to be of interest, and it can be argued that his belief in determinism is what allowed him to make leaps and bounds in understanding the psyche and exploring psychic happenings. And actually, going on to point number six, which is all symptoms have a meaning, it was this belief in psychic determinism that allowed Freud to posit that all symptoms have meaning. Um, according to Freud, it requires strenuous work for many months and even years to demonstrate that the symptoms in a case of neurotic illness have a meaning, serve a purpose, and arise from the patient's experiences in life. And it was this belief that leads us into point number seven, psychiatrists and the brain. So this belief that all symptoms have a meaning, it wasn't just you it wasn't just that, oh, this person's acting up, they must have a chemical imbalance in the brain. Let's give them medicine and call it let's call it a day. Um, for Freud, that that answer wasn't good enough. So I'm gonna read you this part where he's talking about delusions. So let's say someone has a delusional disorder, maybe they think that something's happening, but it's not really happening. Um so, Freud writes, Delusions can have the most various contents. Why is the content of it, in this case, jealousy? What kind of people have delusions, and particularly delusions of jealousy? Now, we should like to listen to the psychiatrist, but he leaves us in the lurch here. He considers only one of our questions. He will examine the family history of this woman and will perhaps bring us the answer that the kind of people who suffer from delusions are those in whose families similar or different disorders have occurred repeatedly. In other words, this lady has developed a delusion because she had an hereditary predisposition to do so. That is certainly something, but is it all that we want to know? Is it the sole cause of her disease? Does it satisfy us to assume that it is unimportant, arbitrary, or inexplicable that one kind of delusion should have been developed instead of another? And are we to understand the proposition that hereditary predisposition is decisive, also in a negative sense, that is, that no matter what experiences and emotions life had brought her, she was destined some time or other to produce a delusion, you will want to know why scientific psychiatry gives no further explanation. So you see, this belief in psychic determinism and all symptoms have a meaning. There's the symptom, let's say, of, of a delusion of jealousy, and the psychiatrist, according to Freud, might say, oh, well, they just have a predisposition to do so. It's, it's hereditary. And they throw, out, they throw out all other investigation. But for Freud, it was, no, yes, they have a delusion. But why a delusion of jealousy? Why this person? Why now? And he began to explore so many different facets of, of the patient's life instead of just their chemical imbalance or their brain chemistry. So, you know, Freud likened himself, on, he liked to think of himself kind of like an architecture, not an architecture, what? Uh, an archaeologist. Um, and the fact that he liked uh, uncovering, let's say, ancient truths about a person and um, previously unexplored or uncharted territory.
My next point is point number eight, which is errors. Now, I'm not going to get into errors too much today because my next book is uh, Freud's On the Psychopathology of Everyday Life, which I am very much looking forward to reading. This is a very interesting topic, and it was one of his most prominent works. But for now, I would just like to point out um, Freud's belief that errors were very important in understanding neurosis or, or mental illness. So for instance, he wrote, the introduction to psychoanalysis lies in the study of errors and of dreams. Now, this idea uh, of errors and, and why it's important to understand them has to do with conflict. Um, if there is conflict within one's self and it goes unobserved, it may build and lead to neurosis or mental illness. Freud said, Every one of us who can look back over a fairly long experience of life would probably say that he might have spared himself many disappointments and painful surprises if he had had the courage and resolution to interpret as omens the little mistakes which he noticed in his intercourse with others, and to regard them as signs of tendencies still in the background. For the most part, one does not dare to do this. One has an impression that one would become superstitious again by a circuitous scientific path. And then, not all omens come true, and our theories will show you how it is that they need not all come true. And so this idea that, that we have this internal conflict, and it leads us to make mistakes, and it leads us to make errors, and Freud saying that if we only had the courage to look back and try to understand why did I make this mistake, why did I make this error, what's going on, then you can attempt to fix it. Um, it reminded me of of something Carl Jung wrote about in Modern Man in Search of a Soul, where he says, When a Pueblo Indian does not feel in the right mood, he stays away from the men's council. When an ancient Roman stumbled on the threshold as he left his house, he gave up his plans for the day. This seems to us senseless, but under primitive conditions of life, such an omen inclines one at least to be cautious. When I am not in full control of myself, my bodily movements may be under a certain constraint. My attention is easily distracted. I am somewhat absent-minded. This idea lies behind the, the statement that also Carl Jung said, in that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So one of the things the psychoanalyst encourages us to do is when you make a mistake, when you make an error, stop and consider what is it, especially if it's a repeated mistake or a repeated error, what is it? What is it about this that I am not a hundred percent given into? Is there something? Is there a part of me that? Is there a part of me that doesn't want to do this? Is there a part of me that has some type of a ambivalent feeling toward this, or that wants to run away in the other direction? Um, so maybe stop and question and examine and explore and have courage. So point number nine is is dreams. And I'm not going to get much into dreams today, but I did want to point out, Freud said, dreams prepare us for comprehension of the neuroses. I also wanted to give you a fun fact of, you know, if you, you might associate Freud with sex, and I'm not going to get into much to why that might be today either. Um, but a fun fact, if you've ever had a dream about your teeth falling out or getting them pulled, according to Freud, a particularly remarkable dream symbol is that of having one's teeth fall out or having them pulled. 
Certainly, its most immediate interpretation is castration as a punishment for onanism. Onanism being masturbation. So, if you've ever had that dream, now you know what it means according to Freud. Which is a great segue into point number 10, which is sex. So, Freud said, The precautionary measure of coitus interruptus, which is pulling out, when practiced as a customary sexual regime is so regularly the cause of anxiety neurosis in men, and even more so in women, that medical practitioners would be wise to inquire first of all into the possibility of such an ideology in all such cases. Innumerable examples show that the anxiety neurosis vanishes when the sexual malpractice is given up. Now you might think to yourself, what on earth, how can pulling out lead to anxiety? Well, according to the Bible, it can also lead to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep, his, to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Now, I don't think that the message in this portion of scripture is trying to say that pulling out actually leads to death. I think that the underlying kind of problem here is that he wasn't fulfilling his role or he wasn't fulfilling his duty. And notice that Freud called it a sexual malpractice. Um, so I wonder if in the early 1900s in Vienna, you know, the Victorian era, when um, whatever the social climate was like, which a little bit of digging shows that uh, to quote the Victorian, to quote the Ezra Institute, at that time, women were largely thought to be lacking in sexual desire and wives were required to endure, not enjoy, sex. Pregnant women were expected to stay in their homes to avoid displaying the results of intercourse, and women were denied access to reading that might be sexually enlightening, even Shakespeare. So if you think about how important gender roles and societal roles were at this time, in this culture, in this climate, um, perhaps you could presume that the pressure that people had around having children all of that pressure and then if you're going against that societal pressure and you're going against your roles and your duties at the time you might see how that could lead to some form of anxiety i'm not saying that that's exactly what was happening but one could be curious this leads us into point number 10 which is paranoia and homosexuality According to Freud, from these observations, which were continually corroborated, we drew the conclusion that persecutory paranoia is the means by which a person defends himself against a homosexual impulse, which has become too powerful. Now, persecutory paranoia is when a paranoid person thinks that they're about to be persecuted by some force, some person, something that's out there. Something's out to get me. So you might hear that, you might read that and think immediately, you know, you might feel some type of way. Um, and I did too. And I, I, I thought back to uh, something that I read by Dr. Nancy McWilliams in Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, where she said, when an unbearable attitude is denied and projected, the consequences can be grave. 
A connection between paranoia and disavowed homosexual preoccupations has been noted for some time by clinicians and was confirmed by some empirical studies several decades ago. More recently, Adams, Wright, and Lohr did a series of experiments that showed that the more a man was aroused by homosexual imagery, the more homophobic he tested. Paranoid people, even the minority of them who have acted on homoerotic feelings, may regard the idea of same-sex attraction as upsetting to a degree that is scarcely imaginable to the non-paranoid. To gay and lesbian people who find it hard to see why their sexual orientation is perceived as so threatening, the homophobia of some paranoid groups is truly menacing. She also wrote, Freud thought same-sex longing was particularly implicated in paranoia, but my own experience suggests that any kind of longing feels unbearably dangerous to a paranoid person. So I think the key takeaway here, so Dr. Nancy McWilliams was writing about paranoid personality styles. Now in this book, she talks about different personality styles. There's a depressive personality style. There's a histrionic personality style. There's a paranoid personality style. So these are all just styles. They're not disorders. They're not illnesses. Everyone has a certain personality style. Um, and so for the paranoid people, for and so for paranoid people, one of the features of their personality style is that they experience what is on the inside as if it were coming from the outside. So for example, let's say on the inside you feel guilt for something that you did, um, but you are unable to acknowledge it because of how 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 terrible it feels on the inside so you displace it you put it outside it's it's not the bad thing isn't coming from in here it's coming from out there and you might begin to feel paranoid and you might begin to feel um like you're about to be persecuted this thing is coming for me this person is coming for me um so that's the general idea and then now let's take someone who has this personality style this paranoid personality style and they're experiencing same-sex attraction in the Victorian era and the early 1900s in Vienna. Um, and the idea that they might start to develop persecutory paranoia is not too difficult to imagine. Um, let's say you're finding yourself attracted to other men at this time, in this culture, in this place. And if that is true, if that is known, you might become an outcast or ostracized. And so this attraction, this this feeling is it's not you're not able to bear it. It's not coming from in here. So this bad feeling must be coming from out there. And you start to feel paranoid and you start to feel um, you start to develop persecutory paranoia. Again, I don't know for sure that that's how he came to this conclusion or if, if that was really what was going on at the time. Um, but again, one could speculate, one could be curious. Two final points. Uh, point 12 is Freud and speaking about trauma. I just wanted to point out kind of quickly that Freud said, the closest analogy to this behavior in our nervous patients is provided by the forms of illness recently made so common by the war the so-called traumatic neuroses. Of course, similar cases have occurred before the war, after railway accidents and other terrifying experiences involving danger to life. I just wanted to point out that they were observing trauma way back in the early 1900s, and that it wasn't just with war, but it was with other you know, civilian accidents. 
and PTSD wasn't really officially recognized by the American Psychological Association until 1980. Um, and, you know, I've read about Vietnam War is really what spurred kicking PTSD into, you know, being researched and added to the DSM. Um, but all the way going back to the early 1900s, they were talking about this. And last but not least, I wanted to talk about Freud and complex grief. So Freud wrote, Grief is a prototype and perfect example of an affective fixation upon something that is past and, like the neuroses, it also involves a state of complete alienation from the present and the future. But even the lay public distinguishes clearly between grief and neurosis. On the other hand, there are neuroses which may be described as morbid forms of grief. So Freud pointed out that there were neuroses that could be described as morbid forms of grief. They could be grief in the form of a mental disorder or a mental illness. And not until just March of 2022 was there added any type of a grief disorder to the DSM-5, um, which is now called prolonged grief disorder. Um, according to this site, it says prolonged grief disorder was added to the DSM-5 for people who are still grieving one year after experiencing a loss, unable to return to everyday activities. It is expected to apply to around 4% of bereaved people. So I just wanted to point out that in the early 1900s, Freud was talking about there can be morbid forms of grief, and here we are in 2022 at the time of this article um, that it's being added to the DSM-5 TR. And with that, that concludes my review of a general introduction to psychoanalysis by Sigmund Freud. Um, this is a new style of video. I haven't done one like this before, so I would appreciate any comments, any tips, advice, suggestions. Um, or if you just like the video, just let me know, and I appreciate reading those comments as well. I'll try to get back to you. And until next time, thank you for watching.